Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. Jump into the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 22. Starting in verse... 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Thank you, Skylar. So I don't know if you guys know this, this is our 60th sermon in Luke. 60th. I think we have four more, maybe five more uh, to, to get us uh, through the Gospel of Luke. We've been here for a while. Um, it's not that Luke hasn't been real up to this point. He's been very real. But it's in this passage where things are like getting real. And here's what I mean by that. Everything that we hang our hats on as believers, for the Christians in the room, everything that we hang our hats on, It sort of kind of begins here, in this garden. And what I mean by that is here's what we hang our hats on. Jesus' suffering, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Without that, there's no reason for any of us to be here right now. And this is kind of the point. This is that point in the narrative where it's like, oh, wow. This is getting crazy. I want to take us back to Genesis before we dive into this. You have Genesis chapter 2. And just quite simply, the scene in Genesis chapter 2 is perfection, sinlessness, shamelessness. If you look at the last verse in Genesis chapter 2, which we could do a whole sermon on, you have God's most prized possession, his creation, created in his image, And it says, and they were naked and unashamed. And what a a way to live, unashamed. But see, the problem is then we have Genesis 3. Genesis 3, we see sin. We see the birth of sin. We see the birth of shame. And here's what's interesting about this and why I'm bringing this up. Everything I just explained to you, everything that happened, it happened in a garden. The first son of God, the first human son of God, the first perfect son of God, which was Adam, the first sinless son of God in a garden, turns from God. And in Genesis chapter 3, and specifically in verse 15, we see a predicted seed that was going to come 
and crush Satan. You know the story where Satan comes and he tempts and, and sin enters. And then there's this predicted seed. And all of human history culminates to this person who would have to come and shed blood. And Genesis tells us it would crush Satan. So God looks at Satan and he looks at his creation. And he tells Satan, you got him. You got him here. Let me tell you what's going to happen. This, this, see this woman here that I created, she's going to have a baby. And you're going to bruise his heel. But then he will crush your head. And it all happened in a garden. And here we are in this narrative of Luke. We find ourselves in a garden. But it's not the first Adam, it's the second Adam. And man, it's a dark, dark scene that we find ourselves in today. It's in this garden that the suffering of the Christ begins. So come with me. Come with me to this garden. We'll pick, pick up in verse 39. It says, he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Now, other, uh, Matthew and Mark tells us, we know that he's going to a garden on the Mount of Olives, Olives called the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a place Jesus would go to often, and he would take his disciples there, would sort of retreat there. And it's likely that this garden was owned by someone who was a follower or supporter of Jesus. Like it wasn't just this public garden that anybody could just go to. It wasn't like Jesus just walked up to a garden and was like, you know, I like it, I'm just going to camp out here. That's not exactly how it worked. It was likely provided to Jesus for him to use when he needed. Now here's, I just want to get practical with you. Some of you in this church have done the, this very thing. And, and it's pretty incredible, right? Like, you've done this on numerous occasions. The Lord's blessed you, right? Maybe it's a, it's a lake house, it's a vacation home, maybe it's an extra vehicle, and you've had it, and you've like, you know what, I'm going to let someone use this for ministry. That's in, it's incredible. So you, we see Jesus in this garden. It's like, man, this has been going on for a while. And I, we have a, a pretty young church, and, and I just want to kind of challenge some of you uh, younger people here in the room that here, here's, here's what I know about Hill City. We have a lot of what I call like rising stars in, in their profession, okay, in their field of expertise. And here's what I know, God has blessed you and he will bless you. Um, he's doing that so that you can be a blessing. So just, I know, I know it's a weird way around this first verse, but I just wanna challenge you. Um, when God blesses you with things, I want you and your spouse to start thinking, how, how can I use this or let someone use this for ministry? That's it. Maybe it's the youth. Maybe it's a college student that needs a car. I don't know. I just know that you're going to be blessed to be a blessing. And somebody owned this garden. And it blessed Jesus and his guys. So that's where we are. Verse 40, and when... When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Verse 41, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. 
Hill City Church, when you read these verses, know what's going on right now. The cross is so near. It is so near. Like literally, when Jesus prayed that prayer, literally at that moment, there are men on their way to this place because they knew that's where Jesus went. They're on their way to get him. And it's not like four or five guys, just so you know. 600 soldiers. Throw in some chief officers, throw in the Pharisees, throw in Judas. We know we are well over 600 men going to where 11 dudes are hanging out. And we won't dive into that, I just think that's kind of bizarre. That's a sermon. Jesus knows this is happening. He knows what's going to go down. He goes to this garden, and here's what he does in verse 42. He goes to his dad. He says, Dad, can there be another way? It's essentially what he's asking. And what we see in these verses is not just a submission, but we see perfect submission. Because we know this, guys. We, we know that this has been the plan. From the beginning, right, the triune God, this is, this is their plan, and the Son was part of that. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, this is the only way. And it's here in the garden that we see this final conversation. And it's a brutal conversation. It's a horrific conversation. It's a painful conversation. I don't have enough adjectives to describe the conversation. And actually, it wasn't much of a conversation. By definition. But Jesus submits. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now we're going to come back to the conversation, but I want to talk to you. I want to give you just a word about submission. Our culture hates the word submission. Jesus gives us a picture of what perfect submission is. What, what, he, he shows us what it is, okay? Submission. Now just, here's the deal. Submission is something that's going to happen when there's a hard time coming to an agreement. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is at, he's in a hard place right now. This is a hard time. For Jesus right here. And here's what I think happens. As we look at Jesus in this moment, I do believe that he gives us permission to plead our case. I do believe he gives us permission to negotiate. He gives us permission to be honest about how we feel. And he does all these things and he still submits. See, submission can be strong. Submission can be vocal. Submission can be emotional. Submission can be honest. It actually should be all those things. As we look at Jesus, that's how he submitted. I don't know about you, that is not at all how I was taught or understood what submission was. So I know we have a lot of parents in the room. Parents, hear me out. Anybody have a child that they could go, oh yeah, He's strong, he's vocal, 
she's honest, she's emotional, she's strong, right? Parents, we can, we can look at this when we're asking our kids to do things and it's not, our response isn't, how dare you? How dare you question or even remotely not submit to me immediately? As if they shouldn't have any kind of a voice. Because that's kind of how I thought submission was. Kids, we have, we, I know we have some, some kids in the room. You can be strong, you can be vocal, you can be emotional, you can be honest, but, but look to Jesus who was all those things, yet he still submitted. Man, Jesus has a lot to teach us. Perfect submission. He's in the garden, he's praying. Man, Dad, you got to give me another way, but not my will, but your will be done. Verse 43 tells us an angel comes to to strengthen him. Then we we get to verse 44, and here's what we see in verse 44. It's here that I believe we really, really for the first time, encounter the humanity of the Son of God. Right, because we know Jesus was fully God, Jesus was fully man. And I know like you think, maybe some of you are like, well, I remember like, what about when Jesus cried, when Lazarus died, like, man, that was part of his humanity. And it was, I I absolutely agree with you, it was. But like, he knew, I'm about to raise this guy. I'm about to raise my boy from the dead. So, but, but here he goes to his dad, it's like, he goes to the father, father, is there, is there another way? And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. I'm getting ready to say something, and I want you to know this. I'm not here in any way trying to minimize anyone who's suffering in this room today, because I know there are people suffering in this room. There are always some people who are suffering in our room. And if it's not you in this moment, you hear me say that, I'm like, I'm glad it's not me, man. Praise God for that, and then weep and pray for those who are suffering. But listen, I'm not trying to minimize your suffering when I tell you what I'm getting ready to tell you. I wholeheartedly believe none of us, none of us understand this kind of agony. Defined, this means gripped by shuddering terror. That's where we see the Son of God in this moment. It says he prayed more earnestly. I read that. I'm like, what? What do you mean? Like, his, when he was praying at first, it wasn't earnest? <laughs> it says he prayed more earnestly. My question is, okay, what's that mean? What did he pray more earnestly. And I think we, what we have to do is go to either Matthew or Mark for that. You can go to either one. I'm going to go to Matthew chapter 26. And I think we can see what it was that Jesus, what Luke meant when he said that Jesus prayed more earnestly. Matthew chapter 26. We'll start in verse 39. It's going to sound very familiar. And going a little further, 
he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if, he, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but as you will. So he goes off. If you remember, Luke said a stone's throw. He gets up. He comes back. Tells us in verse 40, he finds his disciples sleeping. And he tells them again in verse 41, no, watch and pray. And then verse 42, it says, now in a second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came back, 43 says he finds, finds his disciples uh, sleeping, and we'll get to that in a minute. Verse 44, so leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for a third time. What's he saying? Here's what verse 44 says. So leaving the game, he, he, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. He goes to his dad. Dad, you... You can do anything. If there's another way, take this cup for me, Dad. And he goes and comes back. And you know what he prays? The same thing. Dad! I don't want to drink this cup. Is there another way? And he gets up and he finds the disciples sleeping. He comes back. Falls, like he's not kneeling, he's not standing up talking, he falls on his face, he can't even stand up, crying to his dad. And here's what the father says to his son. Are you ready? Every time, every time he goes to the Father and prays and asks, in return, he hears sovereign, ear-splitting silence. Oh parents in the room how hard would this be <laughs> like this is real pain here real pain please dad if there's another way please for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Can I just read that to you a little bit different way? In light of what we just saw here in the garden. Let me, let me just say that a different way. God the Father. For God the Father so loved the world that he was silent. Even when his only son begged for another way. Hill City Church. That's how much God loves you.
Like, can we just pause? I mean, literally, let's just pause for a minute and be overwhelmed by the love of God right here and what we just read. What do we see here in this garden? Like deafening silence from God the Father. And it doesn't like stop there. Luke goes on to tell us. No, he, he sweat great drops of blood. Guys, when we sing about the cross, when we sing about the blood of Jesus and how it atones for us, make no mistake about it, the bloodshed began in this garden. These are the first drops of blood that were spilled for me, that were spilled for you. And here's what's crazy. They did not come from someone inflicting physical harm to Jesus. Like so much has been made of the torment that Jesus went through physically on the cross. And it's real and he did. But I would say this, even worse than the physical torment of the cross was the spiritual and emotional torment that Jesus went through. If you read uh, Mark's gospel, you can read this in Matthew's uh, uh, account of this too. But I just want to go to, if you're in Mark chapter 14 verse 34. Basically, here's what this says. When we see that Jesus was sweating drops of blood, he was in agony. What you have to understand about that, he was, he was in so much pain, he was literally almost dead in the garden. It almost killed him before anybody ever hit him with anything. How do I know that? Mark chapter 14. Jesus said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. That's what he tells his disciples. He's, that's what Matthew has written down. That's what Mark has written, uh, written down. Basically, it's, it's Jesus saying this. I, my soul is so sorrowful, I'm, 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 I'm going to die. Like, I'm going to die right now. One commentary, one commentary that, I, that I read said that Jesus' soul was being crucified long before his body was ever touched. And that's what we see here in this garden. Now here's the thing. Let me, let me just jump into some practicality here. Like, here's the thing. We know that Jesus knew the future, right? Like he knew. Th- you, you know that. Just get somebody, just get a list. I'm not asking you to talk about it, just something like that. Okay. So, so, so. He was still in agony. And I just want to tell you, maybe you're that kind of person, like, man, I just wish I knew the future. I just hate the unknown. I'm just so burdened by the unknown. If I just knew the future, I think it would be easier. No, it wouldn't. And you just need to see it like this. It's by the grace of God. It is, it is gracious of God not to let us know the future. When he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into 
temptation. So Jesus, in one of the darkest moments of his life up to this point, I would say it was the darkest moment of his life up to this point, he wakes up, he comes back to those closest to him, came back to those closest to him, and they were MIA. The ones that should have loved him and been there for him the most were not there. Don't raise your hand. Anybody ever been abandoned by someone who should have loved you the most? Anybody ever husband just walk out on you? Anybody here not know their father, not know their mother? Jesus gets it. Like he literally gets it. He understands your pain. What I would tell you to do out of that pain, if that's you this morning, run to Jesus with it. He gets it. Hebrews teaches us that much. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us when we've been abandoned. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he is without sin. That's what we see in the garden. Jesus gets it. So there's our, there's our scene, like there's our garden scene. So now what? A few directions you could go here, right? You could teach some things on prayer, right? I could, I could go into the sweating of the blood, right? And the physiology of the sweating of blood. We're not going to do that. Because here's what I think happens. As you read this passage, at least for me, there's a question that remains unanswered. And here's the question. Why the agony? Like what could it be that would cause Jesus so much agony? Like I said, this is our 60th sermon in Luke, okay? Jesus spoke of his death all the time, yeah? Like how many times do you got to tell his guys, hey, I'm going to die? How many times has he told us up to this point? Plenty. He spoke of it. And I'm just here to tell you, listen, this agony was not caused just by this thought of him dying, I don't believe this agony was caused by the thought of a wooden cross. I don't think this agony was caused by the thought of the thorns, by the thought of a spear. I don't think that's where this agony comes from. Here's why why I believe I don't, this is why I believe where I believe. Countless people throughout history have been sacrificed. Right? I just, I don't even have to go like past my favorite movie of all time, Braveheart. Right? William Wallace, my guy bravely goes to his death. I mean, they're doing some torturous things to him. And I I don't know how accurate the movie is, but I'm sure it's pretty close, right? And if it's not, don't tell me. But like they're doing horrible things to him and and he takes it courageously yelling, freedom. You're like, oh, that's a movie. That's weird, Brad. Why would you, I mean, 
grow up. Okay. What about the Christian martyrs all throughout history? Surely you've read of them, right? I mean, literally like almost 100% of them, courageous in death. Courageous looking in the face of death. You read, I mean, you read weird stories. These people like are, they, they're singing, right? Have you read these? They, like they go to their death singing. There's one story of a guy who's being skinned alive he thanks the guy that's skinning him. <laughs> He's like, hey, I'm, like, I'm a few minutes from a new body anyway. Like, courageous. But then we have the Son of God. That's why I love the Bible. Listen, I don't know that I, I don't, don't want to sound blasphemous. I don't, I don't know if I can just specifically say that Jesus lacked courage in this moment. I'm just telling you from eye test, it's like, is Jesus lacking courage here? Jesus did not sweat blood because he was afraid of Roman torture. So why the agony? Brad, you haven't answered me. Why the agony? Here's the answer. You ready? The cup. He, kept, he keeps talking about a cup. The cup and the drinking of the cup. What is this cup? What is this cup Jesus spoke of? What is this cup Jesus asked his, his dad, like, Dad, I don't want to drink this cup. There's another way. To, I, let's... Can we not have, can I not drink the cup? Now before I go into this, I want to read you a scripture. Acts chapter 20, verse 27. Paul's leaving, he's getting ready to leave uh, people he loves dearly in Ephesus. And here's what he tells them. He says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Basically, here's what he's saying. I taught you everything I could possibly teach you, and some of it was a lot of fun. And some of it was not a lot of fun. But I didn't shrink back from it. This cup is not fun. But we have to teach on it. I want it to be said of me, whether I leave in uh, two weeks or 50, 60 years, that I can say, you know, we never, we never shrunk back from teaching you the whole counsel of God. What is the cup? This is the cup of the wrath of God, which is a very real thing. This is the cup of the judgment, the severity of the wrath of God. And it is not fun stuff. I just want to read you a a little paragraph out of this. There's a book by J.I. Packer, Knowing God. Um, This is a phenomenal book. I definitely recommend it. Uh, It took me like four or five months to read this because I'm not the smartest guy in the room, okay? You could probably read it faster. This is some heavy, deep stuff that I had to chew on a lot. 
But let me read this. This is what he says. No doubt it is true that the subject of divine wrath has in the past been handled speculatively and irreverently. No doubt there have been some who have preached of wrath and damnation with tearless eyes and no pain in their hearts. No doubt the sight of small sex cheerfully consigning the whole world, apart from themselves, to hell as disgusted many. Like, this is not fun stuff. And, and listen, you guys probably all, see, you've seen, like, the preachers, they get, like, a little twinkle in their eye when they get to teach this stuff. I'm just telling you, for me personally, I don't trust those guys. I didn't enjoy studying it, and I'm not enjoying teaching it. There's just some transparency. See, there's this, there's this mythological sort of mythical teaching that the Old Testament is this. We read the Old Testament and we see God. Well, that's the God of wrath. And then we go to the New Testament, you don't see that. See, that's a God of love. And we got to forget this Old Testament God. And we got to go with this New Testament God. Here's the problem with that. The Bible doesn't allow us to do that. Because the Bible tells us in the New Testament and in the Old Testament that God is unchanging. So we don't get to look at God like two different gods. God's wrath is real. Hill City Church, God hates sin. He hates it. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, tells us this. He who knew no sin became sin. Hill City Church, God hates sin. Jesus didn't become a sinner on the cross. He was never a sinner. Jesus became sin. And it was in the garden I believe Jesus knew in this moment he was getting ready to become something that God hated. Zechariah chapter 13, 7. God told us, he, he prophesied, I will strike the shepherd. Ezekiel 23 speaks of a cup of horror and desolation. Isaiah 51, 17 speaks of the cup of his wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15 speaks of the cup of the wine of wrath. Revelation 16, 19 speaks of the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Hill City Church, wrath is an attribute of God's. Just like he is loving, just like he is holy, just like he is good. We cannot skip it, we cannot deny it, but we cannot look at it like we look at wrath through human eyes. See, God's wrath is always, always perfect. It's always perfect. And listen, I'm briefly going to go over this, but, but as we look in the New Testament, we do see God's wrath, we kinda, and we actually see a couple different types of God's wrath. See, we see God's passive wrath, and then we see God's active wrath. Romans is the best place we can look, right? Romans chapter 1, we see God's passive wrath. 
Essentially, this is what it is. It's when God doesn't stop someone. Right? It's when God removes his hand and he allows someone to go their own way without him. The term you might read in scripture is that he gives them over. That's passive wrath. And make no mistake about it, whoever it is that he isn't stopping, whoever that is, they are getting away with nothing. And we know that because the Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, don't be deceived. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that will he also reap. Passive wrath. When God steps back, says, okay, you want to go there? You know you shouldn't go there. You want to go there? Now this can happen individually. This can happen even culturally like maybe when a culture has parades for things they shouldn't have parades for like when a culture celebrates things they shouldn't celebrate when a culture encourages things that they should never encourage because God says you shouldn't celebrate those and you shouldn't encourage those And we step back and go, where is God? He's not going to be mocked. I I know that. This is passive wrath. And, And the Bible uses a phrase like, it's being stored up. Wrath is being stored up. And then there's an act of wrath, right? Romans 2, 5. It says, but because you're hard and penitent, Heart, that's unrepentance. Another word for unrepentant heart. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Quite simply, it's this. There is a wrath, and it's active, and it's going to be active for those who reject Jesus. For those who reject Jesus, it will be this eternity of rejectedness. And you got some weird teachings out there, like universalism that says, well, actually, there's, there's no one that's going to experience an eternity of rejectedness. And the Bible just doesn't teach that. You cannot draw that conclusion. It's unloving to tell people that that's the way it's going to go down. And we hear things, right? Like, we hear things in Christian, uh, 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 Christian circles and words, right? Like, yeah, I've been saved. I'm saved. Have you been saved? I'm saved. From what? What are we saved from? Severe, righteous, and perfect cup of God's wrath. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Hill City Church, the gospel is good news for a reason. It's good news for a reason. Like the wrath of God does not remain on us. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have been saved, and you've been saved from the wrath of God by the love of God, and now you should live for the glory of God. What 
Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll end here. Here's how I read Ephesians chapter 2 sometimes because I feel like I need to. And Brad was dead in his trespasses and sins in which he once walked following the course of the world. See, Brad followed the prince of the power of the air. Brad followed the spirit that is now at work. Brad was a son of disobedience among whom he once lived. And he, Brad lived in the passions of his flesh and he carried out the desires of his body and of his mind. And Brad was by nature a child of wrath. just like the rest of mankind. But God, who was rich in mercy, because of his great love, remained silent in the garden when his only son begged for another way. And Spurgeon says this, Jesus took the cup and he took the cup with both hands and drank damnation dry. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene And I wonder how he could love me. I did this Wednesday. A sinner condemned unclean. For me, it was in the garden. He prayed, not my will, but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but he sweat drops of blood for mine. He took my sins and my sorrows He made them his very own, and he bore the burden to Calvary, and he suffered and he died alone. How marvelous. How wonderful. And my song will ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me.